I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 18. I know some of you might have just sat down, but I want to invite you out of reverence for God's Word. If you will stand as we read His Word together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16 and reading through verse 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's all right. It's going to be on the screen uh, over here. It's three verses, short but sweet, packed full of truth. Paul writes this, he says, Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Let's read it one more time. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we dive into your word to hear from you, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word so your people are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, as we come to this first Sunday in November, we come to a time of year. I know some of you might not be ready for it, but it's here. We come to this time of year when the holiday season is right around the corner. Thanksgiving and Christmas are nearly here. Uh, many of you at this point probably already have some plans. Many of you have already started, or if you are in Enneagram One, you're probably done with your Christmas shopping already. I am not that. I have not started. Uh, this is a season that typically gets pretty busy for many of us, and as we, as we try and remind you as pastors during seasons like this, or any season, honestly, of busyness and planning, there is a temptation to lose sight of what it is that we celebrate and what, what should be most important. Now, during Thanksgiving, I'll throw this out there, despite its often very misrepresented origins, what it has turned into now is we set aside a specific time of year to give thanks for things in our life to reflect on what we have and the blessings in our life. During the Christmas season, despite the trees, the lights, the presents, the family get-togethers, what we as Christians are primarily remembering is that God has come in flesh, born of a virgin in a little town called Bethlehem to reconcile people back to himself. And there's a temptation during, <clears throat> during these months to lose sight of the things that are most important. And so what we wanted to do this year... We don't always do holiday-themed series. We don't always do Advent. But, but this year, we wanted to, to take these two months, November and December, and work through two small series to hopefully help us to continue to, to worship and approach these holidays in such a way where the glory of God is our primary focus. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is spend some time in a little series, again, a short series entitled We Give Thanks. We Give Thanks. And that'll take us right up through Thanksgiving, and then we'll be in December, and at which time we're going to spend a few, few weeks reflecting on the Advent or the coming of Jesus into the world. The title for that one is still pending. But first, we want to, we want to just take a few weeks and consider this idea of we give thanks. Now, I don't know about you, excuse me, <clears throat> but we have some traditions in our house that often accompany the holidays. Now, I say that with a little bit of an asterisk because one of the things that my wife picks on me for, she says that I make traditions out of things that aren't really traditions. So I'll say, oh, that's a tradition in our house. And she'll say, it's not a tradition. Ours. We did it once. 
But if I like it, it becomes a tradition. But I'm pretty sure that this is a tradition uh, in our house during the Thanksgiving season. Normally, we get together for a meal. And during that meal, someone, and it's usually my dad, will ask for us to go around and share the things that we are thankful for. Does anybody else do that? We go around, we say things that we are thankful for. And, and listen, even though I know this, I know that this is going to come at every Thanksgiving meal. Every year, I find myself scrambling to say something. Because here's the thing, depending on where you sit at the table, you might have to go last. And if you go last, the good ones are all taken. You can't say, well, I'm thankful for Jesus. Somebody covered that. That's normally one. Can't say I'm thankful for friends, family. It's already been taken. Can't say thankful. I'm thankful for the church. Somebody already called dibs on that one. You know, you can't say you're, you're thankful for the same thing. I mean, far be it for us to be thankful for the same thing. And so it's often hard for me to give thoughtful answers if I'm at the end of the table. But as I was reflecting on that, it was interesting because I realized that that's just not a problem for me when it comes to Thanksgiving. Often, when people ask me what I'm thankful for, when people ask me what the good things are that God is doing in my life, what God is teaching me, it's often harder for me to give a response to that than say when they ask me about my struggles or my hardships or my trials. And so all that I'm left to conclude, and I was examining my life, kind of thinking through this as I was working on this sermon, all that I'm left to conclude is that, man, for, my, for me, Thanksgiving is not the natural everyday rhythm that it should be in my life. It's not the thing that flows out of me most naturally. It's easy for me to talk about the hardships, because we've all got them, and they hurt, so we're keenly aware of them. But it's hard for me to to, to reflectively give an answer to what I'm thankful for and the good things that God is doing in my life. And, and I say all of this because I'm assuming, and maybe you're holier than me, and that's okay, then just listen to me talk to myself for the next 40 minutes. I'm assuming that that might be the case for some of you in this room as well. That it's easy to recount the hardships, the trials, the struggles, the painful things, but, but we're not always keenly aware of the good things that God is doing in our lives. Perhaps Thanksgiving is not the pattern and rhythm of your everyday life, but the problem comes when we consider that it should be. That even in our text this morning, that call there at the end in verse 18 to give thanks in everything, it's not a suggestion written into the Bible. It's a command. It's, it's an imperative. It's written in the active, the present. We are to be doing it now, always doing it, giving thanks in everything. So if you, like me, as I was reflecting, find that the natural rhythm and pattern of your life is not thanksgiving, the, the question that I found myself asking, the question that I think we should ask is, how then do we cultivate lives that are defined by thanksgiving? How do we cultivate lives that are defined by thanksgiving? And the beauty of the text that we just read, even in those three commands, those short three verses, there are insights into how we can fight to cultivate lives that are marked by giving thanks. So let me set the scene for you before I dive in. The verses that we just read come at the very end of, of Paul's first letter to the church of Thessalonica. And so he begins the le letter, not ironically, by giving thanks. He's giving thanks for them, for the churches, how they've stayed faithful, how they've kept the faith, how they've kept their joy in the Lord, even in the midst of some very, very difficult persecution. Paul encourages them. And then toward the end of the letter, he offers this call to continue in sanctification. 
continue in growing to look more like Jesus. And beginning there in verse 12, it's like a rapid fire list of areas in their life that he wants to see them pursue sanctification. And he mentions honoring those in leadership positions, specifically those who are pastors and leaders in the church. He says, honor them. He talks about pursuing peace, about exhorting one another, about warning one another, comforting one another, helping one another, showing patience to one another. Paul mentions that we shouldn't return evil for evil, but we should return good for evil. But then he gets to verses 16, 17, and 18, and he mentions these three commands, kind of continuing in that rapid-fire shot of things to pursue in sanctification, of growing to look more like Jesus. And he says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. And then he says this, for this, and I believe the, the this here is in reference to all three of those commands, he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so in these three commands, though, in rejoice, pray, give thanks, there seems to be this progression, almost as if one leads to the other, which leads to the other. And in this progression, we see the pattern by which we can begin to cultivate lives of thanksgiving. Now, there are three things that I want you to see this morning, and they they come directly from the text. They're literally the words of Scripture. So here's the first thing that I want you to take note of. Paul calls us to rejoice always. Rejoice always. That's verse 16. Rejoice always. Now, I know that may seem simple, that two-word command, right? Rejoice always. We got it. Rejoice. But, but I think we need to do a little bit of unpacking here. First, we, we need to define those two words if we're really going to understand what Paul is calling us to. And so he begins and says, rejoice. Now, you You could say here, when Paul says rejoice, you could say that what Paul is saying is have joy again. Have joy again. I think that's a helpful way that we could define rejoice, to have joy again. Rejoice simply means to be joyful over and over and over again. So what do we mean, what does Paul mean here when he calls us to have joy over and over and over again? Well, a definition I have given over the years, some of you might have have heard it. It doesn't originate with me. It originates with another pastor, uh, but he's not doing too great, but I'm still going to keep his, uh, his definition of joy because all truth is God's truth. So even if you fall off, if you say something that's true, I think you should stick with it. But here's the definition for joy. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person, people, and purposes of God. Joy is a supernatural delight in the person, people and purposes of God. So let's, let's break that definition down a little bit. First, we've got to note that it's supernatural. The joy that Paul is calling us to here is a joy that you cannot produce in your life by sheer willpower. You cannot muster up enough joy in your own strength to, to be faithful to this command of Scripture. This is a joy, though, that if it is supernatural, it's also not determined by our circumstances. It's a joy that comes supernaturally. Now, we'll come back to this in a moment, but if you recall, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's it's something, this, this fruit of the Spirit, this joy, it's something that only the Spirit can produce in you. So it's a supernatural delight. Again, I know I didn't give you a lot there with the supernatural, but we'll come back to that in a minute. 
But it's a delight in what? Well, notice the person of God. This is a joy that flows out of simply knowing and delighting in who God is. Right? It goes back to what what our brother Jesse talked about even last week from Deuteronomy chapter 4, that, that our knowing God, our, our growing in, if you will, information about God, it has a purpose. And the purpose is not just to grow in information. The purpose is that as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is, it will push us to grow in intimacy with this God. In order to live in intimate fellowship with him, we have to know about him. And the amazing thing is, is the more that we learn and understand about just how amazing our God is, the more joy the Spirit will produce in our lives. We've had experiences like that, have we? I mean, I don't think I'm just speaking of things that, that, that we haven't experienced in our life. Have you ever had those moments, right, where you're studying the Word, you're studying Scripture, you're listening to somebody preach, you're praying, you're doing something, and it's as if the, the Spirit gives you eyes to see, to understand something about God that you've never seen before. That should be happening in our lives, because let me be clear, if you figured God out, your God is too small. Like We should be growing in our knowledge of just how amazing this God is. And it's like in those moments when he does that, there's this overwhelming sense of joy that, man, that God who is like that is my God. There's a joy that kind of flows out of this growing, ever-increasing knowledge of who God is. See, joy is a delight in who God is, but that's not all that joy is. It's also a delight in his people. There is a joy that, that should grow within us when we live faithfully in the covenant family of God. There is a joy that wells up. Some of you might be experiencing it right now in the midst of hard circumstances, in trouble, in trial. There's a joy from being in this place and doing what we do and praising God. It's not that your struggles go away. It's not that your hardships go away, but, but it's almost as if you're reorienting your eyes and your mind, and you remember that though all that stuff is bad, God is bigger than all of it, and there's a joy in that. Being in the presence of the people of God, worship and celebrating the greatness of our God together. Now, I'm in a, this is like a soapbox here thing, so I'm going to just kind of step on that for a minute. I, I think that's why Satan is doing such devastating things in the American church. Because we love the individualized faith. We love the, let me just read my Bible on my own. Let me listen to that podcast. Let me watch that sermon on YouTube while I sit in my bed in my PJs. And yes, it might be comfy, but you are missing an area where God could be developing joy in your life. The Christian faith was never meant to be lived behind a computer screen. Never. I mean, it's crazy to me. Like, we often think about discipleship, and the first place that we run to is like, all right, if you're going to be a disciple, you've got to start praying. You've got to start reading your Bible. I'm for those things. I really like the Bible. But the, the Bible itself doesn't put the emphasis of discipleship on your individual efforts. It puts discipleship in the context of being in the church. That's why when you go to Ephesians, you go to Romans, after the gospel is explained, after we realize who we are in Christ, and it switches to what do we do now in light of that, it always starts with your place in the family of God. Because there's a joy that, it, that is cultivated in community. Membership class is coming up if anyone wants to be a part of it. This gathering, brothers and sisters, is indispensable. It is indispensable. And I hope that during those hard months where we were forced, and I still think rightly so, to, to, to do church a little differently in light of this pandemic, I hope, I really do hope that like your soul felt the burden of that. If you liked that, let's talk later. 
So joy is a supernatural delight in, in the person of God, in the people of God, and finally in the purposes of God. See, this means delighting in the fact that God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, but the promise remains that God is working to accomplish his purposes in this world and in our own lives. It is believing, Philippians 1, 6, that, that I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me get real practical about what I mean about delighting in the purposes of God. It means that when everything is going wrong in your life, when the bottom is falling out, that you can still look at God and say that he is good and what is happening is good, though it might hurt, because I trust and I believe that God is doing something in my life that only God can do, that he is cultivating something in me that I am missing, that he is doing what James says in James 1. He is making me perfect and complete and lacking nothing, and therefore I will delight in the purposes of God. You don't have to delight in the circumstance, but you delight that God is with you in the midst of it. So, so Paul says, this is what we are to have. We are to rejoice. We are to have joy over and over again. A supernatural delight in the person, people, and purposes of God. But notice the second word in that command. Always. Rejoice always. Yeah, I think the always is harder than the rejoice. Because if it's just rejoice like when I feel like it, I'm good. I'm good. When everything's going well, yes, joy, easy, mm, got it. Rejoice always. When I don't feel joyful, rejoice. Yeah. When you already feel joyful, rejoice again. Yeah. When things are going exactly how you want them, yeah. When things are out of control, yeah, always means always. You and I as believers are called to live in a constant state of finding our joy in, the, in, in this life, in the person, the people, and the purposes of God. And, and let me add here, not as a secondary effort, but as your first stop. I think what we so often do is, yeah, yeah, we'll... we'll We'll find joy in the Lord, but only when we can't find joy in other things. I've noticed in my own life that, that I, am, I am more joyful, honestly, when it seems like everything is out of control, because it's in those moments I've got nothing else to look to for my joy. But when the bank account is full, when my wife and I are on the same, man, we, we're vibing, Nobody's been disrespectful to anybody for at least 12 hours. Like my kids are, are listening. It's easy for me to find my joy in those things. But then when I've got nothing else, when all of that's going on, my wife and I are struggling to communicate, when my kids are struggling, when job's not going well, when the church is, is hard, when all of those things are going, that's, yeah, I'll find my joy in the Lord. And, and what Paul is calling us to is like, no, 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 we rejoice always first in the Lord. And I want to throw this out there. Paul's not one of those guys who's calling you to something that he hasn't had to wrestle through, right? You know, you know those people that give you advice or tell you to do something that sounds good, but they've never had to do it, right? Like we had a president recently who's a little rich, and he's like, oh, I worked really hard, and if you work hard, you can be rich too. It's like, no, your daddy gave you a lot of money. 
It might still be good advice, but like you don't know experientially what you're talking about. Yeah, Paul's not that guy. Paul had a track record of very difficult seasons in life. He tells us what some of them are in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27. I mean, listen to this resume. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. Like at that point, you stop getting on boats. All right, three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Right? Like Paul understands what he's calling you to. And he also understands that life isn't always filled with great, easy moments. And yet still, he calls through the inspiration of the Spirit for us to rejoice always. Rejoice even when we experience Paul-like circumstances in our life. And for many of us, myself included at times, we often think there's no way for that to be possible. How do I find joy when I'm being beaten with rods? How do I find joy when I'm stranded in the open sea and I have no idea whether or not I'll see land again? How do I find joy when I'm facing trials from people within the church and people from without of the church that they're the cause of the hardship? But you see, Paul understood something that we often forget, that joy and suffering can coexist. Joy and sorrow can coexist. Joy and struggle can coexist. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, as grieving, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet enriching many. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Or you could look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, and hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak... I am strong. You see, the dichotomies that we set up don't exist for Paul, and they don't exist in the spiritual life. You can be sorrowful and joyful at the same time. You can grieve and rejoice at the same time. Because you see, joy comes not when we act like suffering isn't happening in our lives, not when we act like sorrow isn't present or that struggle isn't there. Joy comes when we recognize all those things to be true and present. And while wrestling through the pain, we believe that God is better. We believe that his purposes are being fulfilled and we delight in the people of God around us. In other words, let me say it like this. Joy has never been and will never be dependent on your circumstances. Joy is rooted in a dependence on and a pursuit of the unchanging God. Now you might be thinking, yes, amen, Michael, I agree with that. But how do I cultivate that joy? I mean, you said it's not something that I can just create in and of my own power. I want that. How do I get that? Because again, here's the thing, you, you can't cultivate that joy on your own. It's something that the Spirit produces in you. So the question, the better question is not, how do I cultivate this joy? The better question is, how do I place myself in a position for the Spirit to cultivate it in my life? Well, Paul's going to tackle that next. Here's the second command that I want you to take note of. It's verse 17. Pray constantly. 
pray constantly. So rejoice always, pray constantly. Again, it's, it's almost as if Paul is building here. And, and, and this command to pray constantly, this is, this is not a, a command that's uncommon in Scripture. Jesus says in Luke 18, verse 1, now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. Paul in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer. Ephesians 6.18, again Paul, pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Now, we, we got to kind of wrestle through a little bit what's being said here because I don't believe that what Paul is calling us to, I don't believe that what God is saying is that we can never utter a word other than prayer. If that's the case, then like what I'm doing up here isn't right. We should all be praying right now. I don't think it would be consistent with the Bible if if we understood Paul to say the only thing that better come out of your mouth is prayer. How do we train our children in the way they should go if we're only praying and not instructing them, not teaching them? How do I shepherd if I, I guess I could pray sermons? That'd be interesting. I don't think what Paul is getting at, what God is saying, is that the only thing that better come out of your mouth is prayer. What, What verse 17 and the verses that I mentioned a moment ago are are referring to is, is cultivating in our lives this day in and day out ever-present dependence on God, a dependence on God. J.B. Lightfoot says it like this. He says, it's not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. Or you could say it like Leon Morris says it when he says, it's not possible for us to spend all our time with the words of prayer on our lips, but it is possible for us to be all our days in the spirit of prayer, realizing our dependence on God for all we have and are, being conscious of his presence with us wherever we may be, and yielding ourselves continually to do his will. So here's what Paul's getting at. Let me just try to simplify it. Though you may not be able to pray during every moment of every day, We are called to depend on God in every moment of every day. You can depend on God when you're walking into that work meeting that you do or do not want to be in. You can depend on God as you parent your children. You can depend on God as you you live in marriage. You can depend on God as you date. You can depend on God when you get that bad news from the doctor. You can depend on God in the midst of that hardship. You can depend on God on God in the midst of that triumph. The call is to consistently and constantly depend on God. And here it is. The reason he says it in the context of prayer is because prayer is one of of the greatest indicators of whether or not we are depending on God. Let me say that again, that prayer is one of the greatest indicators whether or not we are depending on God. Because the flip side of that What you don't pray for is a declaration of what you don't think you need God for. That's a weighty thing to think about. What you don't pray for, what you don't pray about, what you don't take into the presence of God is what you think you don't need God for. And what consistent prayer reveals is that we understand that we are in need of Jesus all the time. It it is a means by which we depend on God in every season for every decision and with every need. 
And the reason that this exhortation is so significant is because there is a temptation. Let's be honest. There's a temptation to try and do life depending on ourselves, relying on our own strength until we find a situation we can't overcome on our own. Then we turn to God. And that's the antithesis of what God is calling us to here in 1 Thessalonians 5. It's not that we go through life on our own and when hard things come, then we depend on God. It's that we depend on God first and watch if some of those hard things don't, be as, don't, be, don't stay as hard. And see, this truth, to pray constantly, it strikes at the heart. It honestly strikes at the heart of something that God's just been teaching to me lately. Some of y'all have heard little bits and pieces of it because I've shared with you. And, and I'm going I'm to take just a moment um, I'm just going to preach my heart for a moment, right? I think, I think we have lost in our faith this notion of what it means to depend on God. I think we've lost a real notion of what it means to walk with God. Now, I don't, I don't blame you for that. I don't. I blame bad teaching for that. Because here's, here's how I think we so often view it. And, and maybe you've not viewed it like this, and you got good teaching. Uh, it's probably the other elders and not me that gave it to you then. Um, we typically think of our Christian walk as if, as if, right, you've probably heard like, hey, you need to start your day with Bible reading and prayer. And I'm good with that. I, I try to do that. I'm, I'm for that. But the reason given is because, hey, you're going to face so many temptations and trials and hardships and so many distractions. You've got to fill up with Jesus when, when you have the time because then when you go out there, you, you, you've got to exist in your own strength and whatever you've got in your reserve to overcome those things, right? We, we treat our relationship with God almost like a gas pump. Right? Like we get up in the morning, we try to fill up with as much gas as, as possible, but then we go driving and we go driving without God. That we start living this life without God. Even as a pastor, the message, I'm studying this for some of my doctoral studies right now, and I'm struggling through some of the books that they're having me read. I mean, they're good books, but I hate this dichotomy that's created. There's this idea for pastors, for ministers, for those in full-time ministry, that you've got to make sure you fill up on your own because you're going to come up here and do things like this and pour out for other people. And my question is like, well, why is it that I can be with Jesus on my own, but when I'm up here, Jesus can't be standing next to me? And as I'm pouring myself out, he's going, here's a little more, here's a little more, here's a little more. See, we've really made the Christian faith a reliance on our own strength. We just throw some Jesus in there in the morning. But the more I look at Scripture, the more I see that the call is not for me to fill up with God so I can do all these great things for God. When I look at Scripture, I see that the call is to to walk with God and do everything with him. I don't stand up here and preach for God. I preach with God. I don't minister for God. I minister with God. I don't suffer for Jesus. I'm called to suffer with Jesus. And as I look at Scripture... I, I see that the invitation, that our adoptions as sons and daughters doesn't mean that now we can do everything for God. It means that now we get to do everything with God. I mean, you see it in Genesis 5, 24, Enoch walked with God, and then he was not because God took him. Like, I want to walk with God so faithfully that he just takes me. Like, I don't even have to die. Like, good job, you're done, come on. But you can look at Noah, Genesis 6, 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. And here it is, Noah walked with God. 
God speaking of the priest Levi in Malachi 2, 6 says true instruction was in his mouth, in Levi's mouth. Said there's nothing, nothing wrong was found on his lips. Here it is. God says he walked with me in peace and integrity and turned many from iniquity. Micah 6, 8, the call, it says mankind, he has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness and to what? And to walk humbly with your God. Go all the way back to the garden before the fall. What were Adam and Eve doing? They were walking with God in the garden. And what I'm trying to say is that dependence on God manifests itself through continual prayer as we walk with God in this life. Now, you might hear that and be like, Michael, that's a lot. Like, to walk with God all the time? To depend on Him all the time? Well, Before you consider this a burden, let me remind you for just a moment about the God that you are privileged to walk with. This is is the God who in nothing existed, spoke to nothing, and something showed up. This is the God who breathes the breath of life into the things that he created with his hand. This is the God who causes mountains to rise and seas to form. This is the God who has never needed anything because everything exists by the word of his power. The God who is not constrained by natural laws because he gives nature their laws. This is the God who shows up in a cloud by day and fire by night. The God who splits the seas and shuts the mouths of lions. The God who heals the sick and gives sight to the blind. The God who faced death and hell and walked out victoriously. It is this God who invites you to walk with him. And not only that, but to cast your cares on him because he cares for you. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to walk with anybody, I want to walk with that God. If I'm going to pray to anybody, I'm going to pray to that God because I believe, like Charles Spurgeon said, that we don't know what prayer cannot do. Think about that. We don't know what prayer can't do because everything is possible with our God. And the crazy thing is, is that if we're honest, so many of us will look at that God and say, I appreciate it, but I got this. We walk, we are invited to walk with a God who has all power and all authority, and there is nothing too big for him. There is nothing too hard for him. There is nothing too complex for him. And again, when we refuse to walk with him, we are literally looking at that amazing God who holds all power and authority and saying, thanks for making yourself available, but I'm good. And so what Paul is calling us to when he says pray constantly is to depend on him. Pray constantly and watch as you walk with God, moment by moment, watch as the Holy Spirit develops that joy in your life that you might be lacking. You want to see joy grow in your life? Walk with God. And you don't have to worry about creating it on your own because God will cultivate it in you. Because when you walk with him, you get the best seat to watch him work. And when he works, your heart will sing. And when we begin to experience that joy that comes from walking with God every moment, you will find yourself doing what it says in verse 18. It's the third thing I want you to notice. Paul says, give thanks in everything. Here's what Paul knows. When you are depending on God, 
and you are walking with him, there is a joy that will develop that will transcend your circumstances. There is a joy that will outlast your pain. There is a joy that can withstand your heartache. There is a joy that will be better than anything this world can produce. And if that joy, which is developed by walking with God, is present, you can give thanks in everything. We can give thanks in the valley because God is there. We can give thanks on the mountaintop because God is there. We can give thanks when we have plenty because God gives good gifts. We can give thanks when we have nothing because God is enough. We give thanks. To again quote Leon Morris, he writes this. He said, Paul had learned that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Even in our difficulties and trials, God is teaching valuable lessons. And they are to be welcomed and used accordingly. He goes on, he says, this conviction of the divine sovereignty and providence leads to the command, give thanks in all circumstances. It may not be easy, I like this, it may not be easy to see the bright side of a particular trial, but if God is over all, then his hand is in that trial. His own cannot but recognize his goodness and make their thanksgiving. We give thanks. In everything, in all of our circumstances, this is a reminder that our thanksgiving is not dependent on what is going on around us. Not only is our joy not dependent, our thanksgiving is not dependent. It is dependent on the God who is walking with us. And if we are walking with God, everything around us might be spinning out of control. But we give thanks because even in the chaos, we are with God. And if we are with him, then we can be assured that God is for us. He does what will bring him glory, and he does what is for our good. It's not always easy, amen? But it's good. And if God is for our good, then we give thanks. And if you doubt that, Paul gives you a reminder, an assurance, if you will, in the second part of verse 18. Look at what he says there. He says, give thanks in everything. Here it is. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is his will for you? That you rejoice, that you pray constantly, that you give thanks in everything. It's God's will. You know, one of the the things we come across so often in ministry, you could ask any of the pastors, you might have come across it too just as you're ministering to one another, loving one another, but for us as pastors, we come across cross it quite frequently as people want to meet with us because there's something going on there's some decision in their life and 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 they say these words i just want to know what god's will for my life is and often what they mean is what job should i take should i marry this person should i should i move to this other city should i go to this school or that school should i should i devote my life to vocational ministry should i go work at a bank And even for us as pastors, sometimes it's really hard for us to know what God wants them to do. But not here. It's God's will for you. Not the entirety of his will, but it is part of his will for you. An unquestionable part of his will for your life. That you rejoice, pray, and give thanks. But again, notice that last part there in verse 18. For you, it is for you in Christ Jesus. 
See, Paul snuck that one in on us. Because by reminding us that this is God's will for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Paul is doing two things with that final statement. First, he's reminding you of the power that you have to be faithful. Because remember, if you are in Christ, you are not fighting for faithfulness by yourself. In fact, you can look down just a few verses to what Paul writes in in, in verses 23 and 24 there in 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself, not you, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. If this morning you are struggling to find your joy in the Lord, if you are struggling to walk with God, if you are struggling to give thanks, Jesus is fighting for you right now if you are in Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God that dwells within you is fighting for you, and He will do it. Yes, we are active, but take heart that God has not saved you to leave your sanctification up to you and you alone. God knows we can't do it on our own. He's that good. And the power to grow in these areas, we already possess that power within us through the spirit that dwells within us because we are in Christ. But not only is Paul reminding us of the power that we have to be faithful, I love this, he's reminding you of your motivation to be faithful. You are in Christ. Christian, I'm talking to you, you who have placed your faith in Jesus. That's you. You are in Christ. Not because you've done all these things perfectly. Not because you rejoiced always. Not because you prayed constantly. Not because you have given thanks in every season. Not because you loved him enough. Not because you were holy enough. Not because you were spiritual enough. You are in Christ Jesus because God loves you. Don't for a moment forget the gospel message that you believe. We have sinned and rebelled against God. Every person that has ever existed has sinned and rebelled against God. And we are all by nature children of God's wrath. And yet, rather than destroy mankind, God decided to save it. Don't get tired of that. He decided to save it and he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross in our place to pay the debt that we owed. He didn't know it. He paid our debt. Right? Like I won't even buy somebody a $5 coffee in front of me at McDonald's. And he paid my debt for sin. He was crucified and buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death forever. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and repented of our sins, we are now and forever in Christ. You will never not be in Christ because you struggle to rejoice. Because you struggle to depend on God. Because you struggle to give thanks. He who saved you is competent enough and strong enough to keep you. And that fact should motivate us to want to rejoice. To give thanks and to depend on Him. Because if God does nothing else for you, and you are in Christ Jesus, you have a reason to give thanks. You have a reason for joy. Let me say this. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus, you too have a reason to give thanks. 
and a reason for joy. And it's because God still saves. It's because God still loves you and he has, called, and he, and he has, he has provided a way for us to be made right with, with him through Jesus. And it's not a, it's not a list of hoops that you've got to jump through. It's not a do better. It's not a fix your own problems. It's trust that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for your sins and to run to him and to depend on him for the first time agreeing with God that his way is best and that yours hasn't cut it. It doesn't mean you won't sin again. Most of us won't make it home from the parking lot before we sin again. But it is that he loves us so much that he keeps us and he keeps forgiving because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our trespasses and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, I want to invite you to find your joy and your hope and depend on him. And I or anybody else that you've seen up here, we'd be happy to talk more about that with you. But let me leave you with this. Brothers and sisters, in this season, specifically this season, but in every season to come, let our lives be lives that are marked by giving thanks to the God who has saved our souls. Because if you are in Christ, this might not be a fun season for you. You might be sitting here right now holding back tears from the pain and the struggle of your week. You might have questions and concerns. But God has saved your soul. Give thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. God, we are so grateful that you are so good. We are so thankful that you are a God who saves, and then after you save us, God, you don't leave us to figure this thing out on our own. But you continue to allow us to walk with you. God, I pray that we would want to walk with you. We would believe that you are for us and not against us. We would trust you and celebrate you. That we would have joy even when there are sorrows. We would have joy even when there is pain. Because you are stronger than all of those things. So God, give us grace to love you well. Give us grace to give thanks in everything. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.